The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. Yes. I think for the recording studio, I think we should get a ping pong table. You think, and what? And a ping pong table? Because it never fucking ends at a ping pong table. No, it starts and ends with a ping pong table. Okay. But the thing is, our studio is not very big. It's fucking tiny. We would have to get rid of the studio recording equipment <laughs> and the desk. Uh-huh. And then, and, but then we'll bring your laptop. We'll get two microphones. We'll just go, we'll go bare bones. Uh-huh. And, and we can play ping pong. From across from each other while we're while record. we're recording, yeah, yes. I, that, that's the worst fucking idea I've ever heard. Thank you. <laughs> and then I was thinking like a pinball machine. Uh, oh, pinball machine in the very quiet uh, recording studio. Exactly, right outside. Since there's no room, it has to go outside <laughs> on the sidewalk where all the Dominican kids hang out and talk really loudly. They're very sweet, by the way. Now. Extremely sweet, but yeah, so we can give them something to make more noise with. That's a good idea. <laughs> We're giving back to the community. We are. We absolutely are. Welcome to No Dogs in Space, everybody. My name's Marcus Parks. I'm Carolina Hidalgo. And welcome to the Beastie Boys Part 5. <laughs> yes. And part 5, this is the one that I know a lot of y'all have been waiting for. This is the what you would call the magnum opus episode, you know, where we talk about the Beastie Boys' most critically lauded album. May not be your favorite, <laughs> but it is considered the best. I think it's very good. <laughs> It is very, it's, very good. It's very good. It's just like the Beatles. It's very good. No, no, they're different. They're very good. Uh, the- <laughs> this is very, very good. Very, very, very good. So when we last left the Beastie Boys, Def Jam Records had just released their debut album, Licensed to Ill. But since Def Jam had a distribution deal with Columbia Records, the album became the fastest selling debut in Columbia's history. Columbia the company. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, not Columbia the country. Because, <laughs> you know, all my cousins and my aunts and uncles there, they have no idea what this is. Paul's Boutique? Paul's Boutique. Yeah. Sí. Muy, muy bueno. Muy, muy, muy bueno. Now, this was an interesting time in the music industry because the people who had come up in the punk scene, like the Beastie Boys, were indeed making it big, but they were all charting by playing everything but punk rock. Blondie had broke with disco. 
Guns N' Roses made it with a hard rock style all their own with former farts with a Z bassist (laughs) Duff McKagan. And now the Beastie Boys have managed to bring rap to the mainstream with an album that had gone platinum four times. Surprisingly, though, the reviews for License to Ill were pretty positive, especially considering how no one was really sure whether or not it was all just an extended joke. Oh, yeah. The headline for the review on the Village Voice said, three jerks make a masterpiece. (laughs) And then the guy shot himself in front of his typewriter. It's a true story. No, that's not true. (laughs) And so the Beastie Boys had gone from New York famous, which is arguably the best kind of famous there is, to globally famous. This meant that Ad-Rock, MCA, and Mike D were basically locked into the frat boy personas they'd created for License to Ill, that is, if they wanted to keep riding that money train. Mm. So when it came time to go on tour, the Beastie Boys embarked on an exhausting 18-month jaunt playing the beer-swilling, crotch-grabbing, foul-mouthed frat boys that had sold millions of records. Yes, and we're not talking about Poison. (laughs) We're talking about the Beastie Boys. It's similar. It's similar in its own way. It's closer to uh, like a, a very innocent Motley crew. <laughs> yes. So, okay. So the Beastie Boys, they were on, well, if you really look at it, they were on three tours, really, for about 18 months, which you can, we'll call one big tour. You yeah. know, the first one being the Raising Hell tour with Run DMC, LO Cool J, and Houdini. And then the License to Ill tour, that's our headlining tour. And then back with Run DMC on the Together Forever tour. And this is like with not a lot of breaks. Yeah. Yeah, they don't have any room to just, like, chill out. They're working constantly. So the License to Ill tour was their first headlining tour. And the Beastie Boys, remember, MCA, Ad Rock, and Mike D, they realized, okay, it's our headlining tour. We can do whatever we want. There's a guy here with a clipboard who works for Def Jam and just asked, okay, well, what do you want for your headlining tour? <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, anything, anything I want. Let's get beer. Okay. And the guy's like, yeah, you can have beer. I'm talking about the stage show. What do you want on the stage show? All right. Okay, Mike, uh, what do you think? Adam? Yeah. You know, and they, they, they talk a little bit. Then they come back. They're like, how about a giant beer? <laughs> <laughs> and the guy's like, okay, all right. How about we make it an eight foot DJ riser in the shape of a massive six pack of Budweiser beer, right? Mm-hmm. You do have a DJ, right? <laughs> and they're just like, yeah, of course. We've got DJ Hurricane. He's our DJ. He used to be Run DMC's bodyguard, you know, old friends with him from Hollis, Queens. You know, he went to school at Jam Master of J. Actually, everyone went to school at Jam Master of J. <laughs> Hollis was in a really small town. Everyone was friends with him. Anyway, okay, so we got a DJ. We got the DJ riser. Okay, great. What else do you need for your headlining tour? And they're like, we want a girl, a sexy girl in a G-string bikini dancing in a cage. Yes, like a go-go dancer that will pour beer on. All right? (laughs) This is so bad. I'm trying to stay in character. I'm trying to stay in character. It's very funny. It's very funny. Anyway, and so to make it even funnier, they decided they wanted also a large, erect, 12-foot hydraulic penis to jump out of a box right at the climax of the show. Perfect. Because nothing screams funny like a giant penis. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, actually, that part was pretty funny. It's pretty good. It's fucking great, actually. I mean, (laughs) well, I mean, fucking great. I mean, it's... It's interesting. Yeah, it's, inter- it's inter- <laughs> interesting. Yes. Yeah. And they're like, okay, the guys decided we're going to invite all our friends to come on tour with us. Let's make an invite list. Here we go. Say Adams. Remember, amazing graffiti artist and cultural icon. Check. And my man, Dave Skilkin. He's going into the audience every night and scoping out the honeys to bring backstage. Perfect. And make sure that, you know, they feel welcomed and valued and a guaranteed safe ride home <laughs> before 11. I don't know. I'm rewriting history. <laughs> Which is wrong. All right. So the truth is the guys 
has admitted that what originally started as a joke, mm -hmm. which is this license to ill thing in the whole tour, this frat boy image, you know, slowly became the real thing. You know, they lost themselves in their performance and they, they really became jerks, although nothing as bad as what the press would portray them. Absolutely no. not. I mean, it was more like kind of like trailer park boys on tour. <laughs> you know, that show like it, it was yeah. more like that. No, it was it was for the most part, like pretty innocent shit. And it was still just building off of this persona that they'd created for the album, essentially, like the persona that Rick Rubin and uh, Russell Simmons were kind of pushing on them. They're like, oh, OK, so, yeah, what do these assholes do? Like, oh, yeah, big fucking beer. Yeah, let's get beer. But they were also kind of these guys. They thought it was kind of funny. Like they th also. Funny. Yeah, like that, that's the thing is that they they did did like to say, like, oh, yeah, that was what Russell Simmons and Rick Rubin wanted us to do. But they had the seed. That oh, was, yeah. <laughs> that, that seed had to, they just, yeah, Russell Simmons and Rick Rubin just watered the seed that was already there. And it grew into a gigantic fucking dick plant. <laughs> yes, it was. <laughs> Two balls. Yeah. <laughs> now, all the pro wrestling inspired antics on the License to Ill tour were meant to be fun. But the problem is that a heel doesn't really work without a face because no one would have liked The Rock if Stone Cold Steve Austin hadn't been there to provide a foil to open a can of whoop ass. It's fucking, <laughs> without the fucking face, the heel is just annoying. What that meant for the Beastie Boys is that a lot of the press, the concert goers, and the music reviewers didn't really get the irony when Ad-Rock would yell, Who got the titties? And I'm like raising my head because in this room, I'm the one who's got the titties. You are, you are. But I can understand how that could be a little bit of a put off. Oh, it's a bit of a put. I mean, it's uh, people would watch and just go, ugh. ugh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the people that and all the like suburban frat kids that were coming to watch him, like they're pissed off that they're showing up to hear Fight for Your Right to Party. They're here to see No Sleep Till Brooklyn. And it's just a guy playing a record and three assholes running around stage pouring beer on themselves. Yeah, they were expecting them to play the music like yeah. they'd seen all the other rock bands play along. You know, they they just seen White Snake last week, man, <laughs> and they played their instruments. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, there was the matter of this little song right here, which, by the way, is pretty much just a ripoff of Shout by the Isley Brothers. Girls! Dismay. 
make me wanna shout. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> it's and, the same fucking song. <laughs> and as you can tell from this song, it's obviously a parody. And then what you said later about them kind of uh, becoming sort of those jerks in the end, like MCA even said so himself. Like it, this started as a goof, mm-hmm. you know, and then we ended up personifying it. Yeah, exactly. And even though the Beastie Boys have since apologized for that song again and again. Yeah. And again. <laughs> and it's really at the end of the day, like girls, it's like, like it's like it's such a misogynistic. T- it's like misogyny of like the make go make me a sandwich variety. Like it's right. like girls to do the dishes, girls to clean my room. As far as like misogyny and hip hop goes, it's not that bad. It's <laughs> it's really not that yeah. bad. And then also it's meant to be satire anyway. It's meant to be satire. But the problem was that the white suburban frat boy audience coming out for the fight for your right to party guys. They were taking girls seriously. Like, I remember when I was a kid, like, guys, like, fucking creepy fucking dudes, like, quoting girls in a serious manner. It's like, oh, that's how you fucking, that's how you treat girls. Were they called the situation and (laughs) Polly? I will not say their names on this show. (laughs) Because I think a couple of them might listen. I enjoyed that program. So anyway, yes, you're right. DJ Hurricane, he said, since he was on tour with them, he said he'd never seen so many white boys in one place. You know, <laughs> and slam dancing and, and stage diving. Like, he's just like, why are kids busting their heads on the floor and then coming back for more? That shit doesn't happen at the disco fever, you know? <laughs> and so that's the truth. It wasn't the mixed audience that they were used to or even hoping for. So one audience member, some young guy, he came up to Mike D at one of the shows and he said, hey, man, yo, dude, you, you, you like smoking dust? You keep talking about smoking dust. And tonight I smoked a lot of dust. <laughs> Thanks for the recommendation. I love angel dust. Woo! I'm having a great time. <laughs> and and that guy probably went on to uh, the star in the on the Jersey Shore. No, I'm kidding. So Mike D, like honestly, after that, Mike D mentioned like uh, meeting this fan, and he walked away thinking like, is this a good idea? You yeah. know, we essentially became an episode of South Park. Yeah. Like, yeah. everyone's doing it, man. Everyone's smoking <laughs> dust, man. Meanwhile, they're like, yeah, we don't do that shit. That's insane. That was our manager. Yeah. I said, our manager's crazy. He's always smoking dust. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, Russell Simmons and DJ Hurricane, they smoked a lot of dust. <laughs> a lot. Well, for a modern parallel, we can invoke the 4chan effect. See, 4chan started back in the mid-2000s with people pretending to be idiots to see how far they could take the limits of bad taste, sometimes with brilliant results that effectively created modern internet culture, for better or for worse. But the more time people spent pretending to be idiotic, racist, misogynistic jerks, the more the board attracted truly bad people who thought they'd found like minds. And next thing you know, our fucking capital is being overrun by morons who didn't get the joke. Mm. Now, as far as openers went, the Beastie Boys didn't skimp. And while their choice of openers was actually pretty fucking solid, I'd imagine they probably didn't vibe all that well with the suburban crowd coming night after night. For the downcard openers, the Beastie Boys plucked a band out of their old New York hardcore scene, who actually just last month caused a bit of a kerfuffle in Tompkins Square Park. (laughs) That band was Murphy's Law.
sure some people came away from that show fucking loving Murphy's Law. Yeah, yeah, why not? Yeah, why the fuck not? I met one of the guys once at the murder bar. That's down, right. Down the street from our house. Yeah, the yeah over on uh, Manhattan Avenue. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, he was really, really nice. Really nice. Yeah. Didn't you take a picture with him? I deleted it because I looked really bad at it. All right. <laughs> Let's move on. I know. I know. It's way too. It's not. I'm not usually this vain, but you should have seen that picture. It was a bad picture. Well, for the upcard openers, the Beastie Boys chose ska punk legends Fishbone. But for reasons unbeknownst to us, Fishbone dropped out. They were replaced, however, with, sorry, Beastie Boys, the best rap group of the 80s. Yes! Public Enemy. <laughs> How low can you go? Death row. What a brother know. Once again, back is the incredible. Rhyme animal, the uncannable. Thief. Public enemy number one. Five folks say freeze. And I got numb. Can I tell them that I really never had a gun? But it's the wax that the Terminator X bun. Now they got me in the cell because my records they sell. Because a brother like me said, well, Farrah comes a prophet and I think you want to listen to what he can say to you. What you ought to do is follow for now. Power the people say, make a miracle. Keep up the lyrical. Black is back all in. We're going to win. Check it out. Obsessed with that record in college. Yeah. The whole fucking album. Takes the Nation of Millions oldest back. Ooh, that album's so fucking good. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so a quick story on the... Well, it's very hard to do a quick story, but here's a quick story of Public Enemy. <laughs> right? Whoa. Best as we can do. Time me. All right. <laughs> so it starts with a college student from Adelphi University in Long Island, New York, named Carlton Douglas Ridenauer, a.k.a. Chuck. Yeah. They're both great names. Yeah. He could, he could go either or, I think. All right. Yeah. Anyway, so at this time, Chuck D was a graphic design major and at one point an MC for Spectrum City. Spectrum City being a, a group of DJs who put together parties and events and sometimes they got hired out to do things like that. And to promote these parties, Chuck D would co-host on his radio show, WBAU, the Super Spectrum Mix Hour with Chuck D and Butch Cassidy. Yeah. Yeah. And on the show, they would bring in rap artists to come in for interviews and to play their music. Like Run DMC came in a couple of times. Beastie Boys came in once. And also like plenty of other newer and upcoming acts like Townhouse 3. So one night, Townhouse 3 came in and they brought in a friend called Flavor Flav. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and the first words Chuck D ever said to Flavor Flav was... Yo, you can't smoke up in here. You have to go outside. <laughs> and flavor. I can't do a flavor flavor impression. I just, I can't. It's impossible. I'm going to do, do it in my own voice. All right? Okay, do it in your own okay. voice. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. So flavor flav said, all right, fine. <laughs> I'll go outside. <laughs> isn't, it, isn't it flavor flav? Flavor Flav. <laughs> How are you whiter than me right now? I flavor Flavor Flav. Because it's hard. It's hard to speak this language sometimes. Uh, I get it. I understand. Yes. Okay. So okay. And Flavor Flav, he would hang around like WBAU radio station all the time. He even got his own show. Yeah. Actually, MC DJ Flavor, which is hilarious because it's MC and DJ. He's like, I got two degrees. You know? Yeah. And I remember reading that like so the first question like. Someone asked about Flavor Flav is like, is he like that all the time? <laughs> they're like, yes, 
He's a character. <laughs> he's a character. He's very funny. He's all over the place. Yeah. I mean, and that's why they need, he is the glue. Yeah, he really is. Yeah, Public Enemy absolutely needed him. Yes. So then one day, Flavor Flav, he went up to Chuck D and he said, hey, man, there's this guy who's telling everyone he wants to go head to head with you in a, in a rap battle. And Chuck D is like, nah, I'm not into that bullshit, but I do have to do something. So he and Flavor Flav recorded a song that he wrote to let everyone know he's got skills no matter what anyone is saying out there. Yeah. So they named that song Public Enemy Number One. And that song's fucking great. Yes. And so sometime later, that song got to Def Jam, where Rick Rubin said, I need to sign this guy today. That song is banging. And it didn't happen that day <laughs> or the next day. Mm -hmm. It was actually almost a year of Rick Rubin calling Chuck D to cajole him into signing with Def Jam. You know, and so Chuck D eventually finally relented when his friend Bill Stephanie said, listen, you know, man, rap needs somebody that can bring a higher level of thinking to it. Mm -hmm. And you can be that guy. And Flavor Flav can also be that guy. <laughs> Because he was signed too. <laughs> to everyone's surprise, what does Flavor Flav do? He just do. <laughs> and Chuck D won't record without him. And they were like, okay, we'll also get this nice guy named Norman who makes cool mixtapes. And his new name is DJ Terminator X. Yeah, what? Terminator X, son. And Norman's like, don't like that name. <laughs> that is your name now. <laughs> so under Def Jam, Public Enemy released their first album, Yo, Bum Rush the Show in 1987. And later it takes a nation of millions to hold us back, which is from the song that, you know, we just heard. Mm -hmm. And countless more albums, tours, controversies. <laughs> but right now. Yeah, controversies. Yeah. Right now, we're right here. Their first album is about to come out and they're opening for the Beastie Boys on their first tour. To have front row tickets to all the shit that's about to go down. <laughs> now, even though everyone kept expecting every Beastie Boys show to end in the deflowering of the preacher's daughter while the fucking venue burned to the ground, the License to Ill tour in America was pretty average by mid-80s rock standards. Yeah, I mean, they didn't piss on the Alamo, you know? <laughs> yeah, they didn't snort any fucking ants in a parking lot. Like, they're fine. Yeah. Although, you know what? They did get in trouble in Syracuse, New York at a show. All right, here's a little snippet from a news story from, from back in the day, 1987. Got it. Officials asked the Beastie Boys to temper their stage show a little bit and at least not use the inflatable hydraulic penis. <laughs> We are insisting that inflatable phallus not be shown, said Norman Rothschild, director of the Onondaga County War Memorial, where the group is to perform Friday. <laughs> and then here's a later news story. <laughs> Onondaga County Executive John Mulroy threatened to ban the Beastie Boys from the War Memorial. The boys' show featured a giant hydraulic penis rising from beneath the stage and scantily clad girls from local colleges dancing in cages. It was determined that the county could not legally stop the show. Stop. <laughs> so you see, they'll get in trouble anywhere they go. They really will. Yeah. 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 They're like, fuck you. This is all right. But even then, it's still, it's just a gigantic inflatable or hydraulic penis, excuse me. It's, it's not inflatable, it's hydraulic. Yes, that's right. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I hear right now, at this point, I hear it's in storage somewhere in New Jersey. Yeah. Which is hilarious because that's the perfect place to put it with all the car dealerships. Yeah. But uh, according to legend, the, uh, storage facility brings it out for every Christmas party and they, <laughs> like they have permission to bring it out and make the gigantic hydraulic penis go high, high, high in the air. <laughs> 
But even though nothing really bad happened in America, when the Beastie Boys began the European and British leg of their tour with Run DMC opening, the advanced hand-wringing of the American press fueled the already aggressive British tabloid journalists who saw an opportunity to sell papers with a new American sex pistols. Yes, the British tabloid The Sun launched a campaign, which failed, Mm -hmm. to deny the Beastie Boys work permits to enter the UK because of what everyone was writing about them in the US leg of their tour. And also the fact that they got banned from all Holiday Inns (laughs) and every flight on Eastern Airlines for life. (laughs) Because they were a little rowdy. (laughs) And in Europe, the press fueled a few rumors that might be true or exaggerated or completely fabricated. Yeah, mostly completely fabricated. Like, for example, in a hotel in Switzerland, they started a fight at a hotel bar and threw beer at the guests. Okay, that one was true. Yes. But that was Russell's idea. Okay. okay to, uh, for MCA to stage a fight with uh, Run from Run DMC to, for, for press. Okay. And then they made a huge mistake doing that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. And another one. They tried to overturn cars in the street outside the hotel. Now, that's an exaggeration. Okay. They were just looking at them. <laughs> maybe. Maybe they touched them. Maybe they touched maybe, maybe they pushed them. Maybe they kind of posed for that photo as a joke, uh, not realizing that the tabloids would actually print that they did it. Yeah. All right. Another one. In a hotel in Hamburg, they smeared the walls with human excrement. That is not true. That is, a, that, compl- is, that is not true. <laughs> Total fabrication. That's fucked. It. Yeah, that, that's that, that's a weird one. That's <laughs> a very that's a it's a real weird one to make up. It, yes, exactly. <laughs> Who's writing this? <laughs> and they also had to deal with another shitty newspaper headline when MCA refused to give an autograph to a woman who was rudely like demanding it, or she'd quote stitch him in the press. Mm-hmm. He told her to fuck off. And the next day, the Daily Mirror's front page headline said. Shame of rampaging starts. Pop idols sneer at dying kids. They were quoted in the article as saying, go away, you fucking cripples. (laughs) And made fun of a sick kid after being asked for an autograph at the airport. Wasn't the word baldies involved? Something like that, yes. (laughs) Her kid would. Uh, one minute the kid has cancer, the other minute the kid's in a wheelchair. Yeah. It, it, it was, but the two aren't mutually exclusive. Most kids with cancer are in wheelchairs. Yes, but it, this is weird. This is the whole <laughs> the whole thing. First of all, it all was made up. Of course, it was None all made of up. This happened. The British tabloid press is fucking vicious. Yes, we well, know this. Well. It really goes around everywhere. But yes. So, okay. So the Beastie Boys, throughout their tour, they got reporters asking them, you know, why are you so mean towards handicapped or dying children? Is that a real question? Holy shit. And the guys were really pissed off. And they said, like, oh, go to hell. You're the ones printing these lies in your papers. Don't talk to us. We fucking hate you. And then the next day, the headline would read, we hate fucking England. With a picture of them at that press conference. They could not win. At all. (laughs) But as it often happens with hysterical journalism, the constant insistence that the Beastie Boys were riotous, disgusting punks riled up a crowd in Liverpool who were fully expecting three fire-breathing rapist Johnny Rottens. When the crowd instead got a six-foot-tall beer riser and rhymes about pirates, they began throwing cans. And before the Beasties knew it, they had a full-fledged riot on their hands. Yeah, you know, they tried to calm down the crowd as best they could. You know, DJ Hurricane said the audience in Liverpool were 
throwing fully loaded beer cans. Dove. Fully loaded. They they were and in, full. And in England, those are fucking pints. Yes. As soon yeah, exactly. So as soon as DJ Hurricane got to the turntables, this is before the Beastie Boys even go on stage. They're throwing them. So like Hurricane figured, okay, once I get the guys on here, maybe I'll calm down. But actually it got worse. So he he actually described it as running away from bullets. <laughs> <laughs> Adrog even had a baseball bat and he had tried to like hit the beers at, like to defend themselves so they wouldn't get pelted with them. <laughs> That sounds like so much fun, though. Really? <laughs> you're trying to, I don't know. You're about to go on tour. Maybe you shouldn't bring that up right I now. Know, if I had a baseball bat and I was able to whack them back into the audience, yeah, that sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah. <laughs> we'll find out why it's not. Our fucking audience is a bunch of people in their mid-30s. They throw joints at you guys. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks. Now, the Beasties were able to make it backstage, but Adrock was wrongfully arrested for throwing a can of beer at a girl in the audience. Luckily, though, a fancy British lawyer named Sir David Napley came to Adrock's rescue, and he escaped the charge. Yeah, Adrock was actually held in jail for four days because of a bank holiday. Yeah. Why is it always that innocent people get arrested before a long weekend? <laughs> I feel like I hear this all the time. Man, that's, so, that's my biggest fucking fear living in New York City, that I'm going to get wrongfully arrested rested on a Friday afternoon, like right before Labor Day. Yeah. And I'm in the fucking tombs until Tuesday. I know. I know. No. Just don't go anywhere. <laughs> All right. So, and it, and this part, it's not mentioned in the Beastie Boys storybook, probably out of respect. But I do believe that MCA probably threw that beer that accidentally hit that girl. Ah. And I think he threw it out of frustration. I mean, he wasn't aiming at anyone in particular, obviously. Adrog yeah. was using the baseball bat anyways. It was just into the crowd, and unfortunately it hurt someone, and it just made things worse. You know, but, I mean, the crowd, they were so, like, they were rioting. Yeah. It had nothing to do with the Beastie Boys. Like, the police had to tear gas the whole crowd. They made five arrests. Yeah. I mean, well, you know, MCA did have um, a bit of an anger problem. A little you bit. You know, a, a, a little bit, which, of course, we'll, we'll be talking more about how MCA got all that under control mm -hmm. in the next episode. Now, this wasn't necessarily the last straw for the Beastie Boys, but not too long after Ad Rock was arrested, their 18 months on the road were over. And by the end of it, all of them were done with pretending to be the drunk dickheads at the party. And MCA in particular was tired of this bullshit. Yeah, I mean, MCA even went up to Russell and Rick and told them that he was leaving the band, unbeknownst to Mike D and Adrock. Mm -hmm. You know, because MCA, he was angry about everything and especially annoyed at Rick Rubin, who, who had taken over mixing their License to Ill album while the Beastie Boys toured. You know, Rick even redid the guitar line that MCA recorded for Fight for Your Right. He's like, where is my guitar? Why? Why is He's like, oh, I just took it upon myself to do it. You know, Rick did that. He took care of a lot of the creative decisions and, and Russell kept telling the Beastie Beastie Boys, they kept telling him like where to go and what to do. And while the Beastie Boys, they all got like a little distracted with the luxurious high life of being rock stars. So they kind of let it happen. And then they stopped for a minute, especially MCA, stopped for a second, be like, what's going on? Mm -hmm. And that's why he just, he quit temporarily because he wanted his freedom back. Yeah. And that's the thing about Russell Simmons. Like, you know, what I said at the beginning of, uh, I believe it was last episode or maybe the episode before that when we first introduced Russell Simmons. Uh, but, you know, I said that Russell Simmons uh, let his artists be creative. He kind of let the artists take the lead. But... Russell Simmons would also work an artist until they fucking died. He would work them to the bone. Work, work, work. You always got to work. You always got to be making money. But you can do it your way. But you always <laughs> got to fucking work. Always. Jesus. Yeah. I wouldn't know what that's about. 
<laughs> the legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes. The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today now after the tour all the beastie boys wanted to do was take a break and relax with the estimated two million dollars they had coming to them from the license to ill royalties but because of the actions of russell simmons there was no kicking back to be had now it's hard to suss out exactly what happened between the beastie boys and def jam when it comes to what happened with the license to ill royalties but as it always goes in stories like this the truth probably lies somewhere in the middle from what it sounds like, though, Def Jam had made a fucking mountain of money from License to Ill, and they had just as quickly put that money back out into the world so Def Jam could expand. And also remember, they had that distribution deal with uh, Columbia at CVS that was eventually bought by Sony. Mm-hmm. So Sony kind of kind of screwed them a little bit. They screwed the little guy being Def Jam. So I think in a lot of ways, their hands were tied. Yeah, I think so. If they wanted the business to expand. So when the Beastie Boys showed up expecting to be paid in full, where's my $2 million? Def Jam just didn't have the money to pay them. Although it's almost certain that the Beastie Boys would have been paid eventually. Nevertheless, Def Jam had to stall the Beastie Boys, so Russell Simmons and Rick Rubin told them that their contract stated that they would not be paid royalties on the first album until they started their second. And the Beastie Boys had just come off of 18 months touring, and they're telling them, you gotta get started on that second record now. So instead of staying under what seemed to be an exploitative, endless cycle of record, release, and tour, record, release, and tour, The Beastie Boys ended their relationship with Def Jam, Russell Simmons, and Rick Rubin forever. Yeah, so all three Beastie Boys went off on their own for a while to maybe like shed that drunken frat boy routine that they were so used to. Mike D decided to take time off to do nothing but take (laughs) psychedelic mushrooms and travel. I mean, is that nothing though? That is perfect. It sounds like the fucking, let's go ahead and say best life. That's great. Yeah, taking mushrooms all the time and traveling. Yeah, it kind of sounds like a goal. It's a gap year. I call it a gap year. <laughs> rich kids call him that. It's a sabbatical. Sabbatical. And he also he also worked a little bit on his music project, uh, Flophouse Society Orchestra. So he did something. He, he was doing some stuff, too. Yeah. Uh, and mushrooms. <laughs> <laughs> and Ad-Rock, you know, he also wanted a change, especially after the recent unexpected death of his mother. He dedicated License to Ill, the album's dedicated to his mother. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ad-Rock ended up going to L.A. with his then-girlfriend, 80s teen Movie star Molly Ringwald. I really like her, actually. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> no, Molly Ringwald's great. She was awesome in uh, The Stand. She was great in The Stand. Oh, yeah, yeah, Well, yeah. I mean, great in The Stand. As good as anyone candles. was in The Stand. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Breakfast Riverdale. <Club. laughs> anyway. She was Archie's mom in Riverdale. Really? Yeah. Jeez. 
<laughs> right around the time that that show took a big nosedive. <laughs> it was fun up until a point. <laughs> until the Gargoyle King came, it was fun. And then after that, it was just fucking nosedive completely. This is so funny. This is a show you watch that I know nothing about. Yeah. This is totally independent of what your wife watches. <laughs> I was obsessed with it for about a year and a half, yeah. <laughs> so Adrock moved into L.A. with Molly Ringwald and started auditioning for parts in Hollywood movies. Yeah, he did. He actually fucking got one. Yeah. <laughs> a weird, strange movie called Lost Angels. Yeah. Uh, where Adrock played a juvenile delinquent in Los Angeles, uh, which he would... What a departure. Dad! Oh, it was a lot of that. Uh. Ah! I what your life <laughs> and he was I, I just watched the trailer it seemed terrible <laughs> now while Adrock was in a Texas hotel filming Lost Angels he received a huge box from MCA Ooh. from Adam Yauk now Adrock opened it and found another huge box inside and inside of that was another box and another box and so on and so forth it's the old <laughs> white trash trick where you get a gigantic box and you fill it with dirt and you put a whole bunch of little boxes inside it. And then once you get to the last one, it's just a pack of cigarettes. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's your version of the Russian dolls. Oh, God, no. I had a friend who, uh, whose mom did that to his uh, dad one year. He Aww. was not happy. <laughs> <Jesus>. <laughs> she told him it was a TV. <laughs> Well, finally, Adrock came to a Ziploc bag full of coffee grounds, and stuffed inside was a cassette tape containing the demos for MCA's new band with Daryl Jennifer of Bad Brains. That band was called simply Brooklyn. And Beastie Boys fans just might recognize this bass line. listen to some Led Zeppelin. <laughs> I mean, that's a, the whole, the demos are, they're very interesting. Like all the uh, demos are on uh, YouTube. Uh, it also features like Dougie Beans, who is the drummer from uh, Murphy's Law. Oh yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, uh, it, It's really strange. Like it's in, recorded in like 1987, like late 1987, early 1988. Wow, yeah. And it sounds five years ahead of its time. It really does. <laughs> like it's like, it's like, that's what it, fucking all of rock music sounded like 
five years later, you know, when everyone else discovered Led Zeppelin. I mean, it sounds like Jane's Addiction. Some of the other songs sound like Firehose, Mike Watts Band, After Minutemen. Some of it sounds like fucking Husker Du. Some of it sounds like <laughs> The Replacements. I mean, it, it sounds like MCA was spending a lot of time listening to Minnesota bands. Uh, but it's worth listening to. I mean, his vocals are... You know, not the best, but it's still pretty fucking cool, especially if you're a Beastie Boys fan. Like, it's definitely worth going and checking out all those demos. Now, instead of feeling threatened about a demo from a new band like a lesser man may have, (laughs) Ad-Rock actually felt heartened that his friend reached out. For the first time since the License to Ill tour ended, Ad-Rock had reason to believe that the Beastie Boys would survive after all. Yeah, and their friendship. Yeah. Most importantly. Oh, yeah. Of course. Well, the Beastie Boys, their friendship is the Beastie Boys. Like, like that's the thing. Without, they're, they're married to each other forever. Yeah, they really are. I mean, if you watch, especially like interviews now with Mike D and, uh, and Ad-Rock, it's like they love each other so very much. Don't know how much they like each other. No, they, they love <laughs> They are just old married couple. Like, oh, with this one again, huh? Am I right? Am I right? So, <laughs> so Ad-Rock, after he finished filming that movie, he went back to Hollywood where he made a lot of celebrity friends and partied with them in their mansions. Yeah, because, I mean, well, he's dating Molly Ringwald. He just was he was just in a movie with Donald Sutherland. Yes, so obviously <laughs> that is A-list material in the late 80s. And it was at one party by the swimming pool where Ad-Rock ran into Matt Dyke, a well-known club DJ and nightclub owner. Now, Matt Dyke, he's very important to this. Yes. He, he had met the Beastie Boys earlier when he booked them to perform at his famous club in L.A. called Power Tools. That show was a disaster. Huge. It was yeah. considered one of the worst Beastie Boys shows ever. The PA blew out and the guys just ended up leaving halfway through the show. Yeah. And that was it. So Matt Dyke was left with egg on his face. But luckily, a guy named Mario Caldato, who was in the audience, came up to him and said, dude, you need a sound man. I will be your sound man. And he got hired from that. <laughs> so Matt Dyke and Mario C, Mario Caldato. Yep, Mario C, let's keep it clean. <laughs> they started working together. First, you know, at Power... I like my sugar with coffee. Sorry. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. I do it, I do it way too many times. <laughs> they started working together first at Power Tools and then moving their operation to Matt Dyke's super messy living room where they built a recording studio with a closet as, as like the vocal booth, mm-hmm. right? And from that... Matt Dyke, along with his partner, Mike Ross, created a label called Delicious Vinyl. Yeah, you may have seen the t-shirt. I wear that (laughs) t-shirt. And they did this after being inspired by Rick Rubin, actually, from Def Jam, uh, because they're like, if they can do it, we can do it. Yeah. And with Delicious Vinyl, they released Tone Loke's first single, Chiba Chiba. Mm -hmm. Tone Loke, you may know from Wild Thing and Ace Ventura Pet Detective. Yes. (laughs) He's great. He's great. So then Tone Loke, he went out to promote that single and he did a radio show hosted by two DJs named Mike Simpson and John King. And on that show, Tone Loke was too distracted to promote anything because of the music that the DJs played beneath, you know, their PSAs, their their public service announcements. Mm-hmm. Like, wh- you know what we do with our ads on No Dogs uh, uh, on the, the show? Uh, the radio term is bed music. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Thank you. <laughs> like, 20 years in the business over here. <laughs> like the ads that you listen to us do, the, there's bed music, mm-hmm. but we don't make that music. So thank you, Kevin McLeod. Yes. Thank, thank you, you, Kevin McLeod. Of thank course. You very yes. much. But the, these DJs would make their own instrumental tracks from that. 
that and they would embed it in there. And so Tone Loke's like, what is that? That's great. This is great stuff. And Mike Simpson and John King said, well, for fun, we record these loops and other instrumental tracks to play during these PSAs on the show. It's a fun thing. We're pretty good at it. Yeah. Yes, of course you're pretty good at it. <laughs> so Tone Loke says, okay. Yo, you should hook up with these guys who put out my record, Matt Dyke and Mike Ross from Delicious Vinyl. Actually, get them on the phone and play it for them. So they did. And Matt Dyke immediately said, come down tomorrow. We need to work together. Who are you guys? <laughs> and these guys, these college radio DJs, you know, the ones with the master touch of creating loops and samples, they were the Dust Brothers. The Dust Brothers. Yes. The infamous Dust Brothers. And the Dust Brothers teamed up with Matt Dyke from Delicious Vinyl to make that sweet, sweet music mm -hmm. for the artists. So Matt Dyke runs into Ad-Rock at this Hollywood party. We're back. We're back in the scene. Yeah. Yeah. And he invites him over to his apartment, his messy dilapidated <laughs> apartment in the bad, shitty part of town. He's like, all right, you, you, you see these mansions with swimming pools? No, no, come with me. Come with me. Come come over to the valley. I don't know where they were. I forgot. Real Los Angeles. <laughs> I think it was like Santa Monica or something. And there, Matt Dyke plays him the Dust Brothers music, and Ad-Rock immediately flipped and, and shined a beacon to call his brothers in arms, <laughs> Mike D and MCA, and told them to get to L.A. as soon as possible. Yeah, and the Dust Brothers, like if you didn't know, like these are the guys that ended up doing Odelay. They did Midnight Vultures. They did the Fight Club soundtrack. Yeah. And oddly, Mbop. By Hanson. That was them. Yeah, that was them. Huh. Huh. It's interesting. Mm, <laughs> I know. Now, as far as what Adrog actually heard at Matt Dyke's apartment that night from the Dust Brothers went, the cassette tape contained a 70s disco pastiche featuring at least a dozen samples, and it was called Full Clot. <laughs> So based off of that song, the Beastie Boys figured that the Dust Brothers were the perfect people to work with on their second album, which was, of course, the Beastie Boys' magnum opus, Paul's Boutique. Welcome to Paul's Boutique, and they're in Brooklyn. 
<laughs> and so once MCA and Mike D arrived in Los Angeles to meet with the Dust Brothers, they rented a room at the luxurious Le Montréal on Sunset Boulevard, where the Beasties, for the most part, tried to shake off the last of their frat boy instincts. Yes, they rented a room. No, no, not just one room. They're not like three guys from the Three Stooges, okay? They rented three rooms. Three rooms, okay. It wasn't okay. like the yeah, three yeah. amigos where they're in Santa Poco and they're just in one bed. No, they each got their own fancy suite like with unlimited room service and whatever else they wanted. Mm-hmm. They even flew some of their friends over to LA, like say Adams and Ricky Powell to hang out and just party with them. Yeah. you know. So a regular day with the Beasties consisted of getting up late having a leisurely breakfast with 10 of your best friends, Mm -hmm. hanging out by the pool and having cocktails brought to you and putting it on Brett and Michael's tab. (laughs) They found out what room he was staying in at the time, (laughs) charged it to his name. And then at night, they would go out to clubs and and party some more, or sometimes stay in for the night and pelt people with eggs from their windows. Yeah, that was pretty common. Yeah, the Mondrian was across the street from the comedy store. By the way, it's where I was bumped from a show one night for uh, Chris Rock, but that's another story. (laughs) It was across the street from comedy store and people would be waiting in line to see Billy Crystal and the beasties and their friends would throw eggs at them at the people at the line and oh. the Mondrian Hotel would try to be nice to these Home Alone tours <laughs> sent a letter saying that they had received complaints of items falling out of their windows and hitting people on the sidewalk. And to let them know if there is anything that they can do to fix these windows from letting <laughs> eggs fall from them. That's a very nice way to stop throwing eggs, you fucking children. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man, this is 1988, Billy Crystal. Oh, this is Throw Mama from the Train, Billy Crystal. Yes. This is pretty good. Right before City Slickers, Billy Crystal. Ooh, mm. that's prime crystal. <laughs> <laughs> so once the beasties decided that the dust brothers would be their new rick rubin or actually better than rick rubin because the dust brothers weren't going to just take the album and run with it they signed to Capitol records yeah who do you think covered the bill for the hotel and room service <laughs> that's true i mean there was a whole there was a lot of back and forth with jeff jam about them like getting out of their contract and you know all that essentially def jam sued the beastie boys for breach of contract the beastie boys countersued for breach of contract and at the end of the day, Def Jam said, yeah, we'll let you out of the contract, uh, but we're not paying you any fucking royalties. They're like, fine, fine, <laughs> fine. And they all closed their doors to their bedrooms. <laughs> and that was the end of it. No, kind of, sort of. Kind of, sort of. Kind of, sort of. We'll get into that in, here in a little bit. And after signing with Capital, the Beasties seriously got to work on Paul's Boutique with the strange little cohort they'd managed to fall into upon arriving in L.A. It included the Dust Brothers, Matt Dyke, Matt Simpson, and Mario C., now, as opposed to License to Ill, which shares a bare-bones metallic aesthetic with groups like Run DMC, and that's Owen and Rick Rubin's outsized influence, Paul's Boutique is a lush, warm, complicated album, with each piece of each song fitting in immaculately with all the rest. In fact, some have called Paul's Boutique a hip-hop opera, while others contend that it's really just one 53-minute long song, much like the album's nine-song ending suite of New York goodness, B-Boy Booyabase. It's 4 a.m. I got the husband for Smoking, head for the last cough, the rest of life blackout. Police will tell my homeboy, put that crack out. You know you light up when the lights go down. And then you bring the New York 
daughters Your leaves are crease Hot cup of coffee and the donuts are dunkin' Friday night and Jamaican Queens fuckin' Elevated by I'm never gonna fall Riding over the diner where I always get my toast warm Busted to the conductors, put that busted out rhyme Over the loudspeaker, about to hard time Sat across from my man, I'm reading El Diario Riding the train down from the El Barrio We're from the station You know, it's funny as I was actually listening to that song on the G train earlier today. And man, it's still just, it, it feels like it was recorded yesterday. Yeah. Like, like the feeling of being on the train in New York City just never fucking changes. It's always the same. Uh, but it's just fucking cool. Like, it's, it's nice to know that, you know, New York is pretty much the same all the time. Yeah. Despite everything. Despite everything. Yeah. Now, as far as where Paul's Boutique was recorded, much of it was actually done in Matt Dyke's L.A. apartment, although a good chunk was done in the world-famous Record Plant Studios because the Beastie Boys were, let's say, irresponsible with the advance money they got from Capital. Yeah, Mike D called a barroom rental place and ordered a ping pong table, a large screen TV, a foosball table, <laughs> an air hockey table, and three pinball machines. <laughs> Actually, Tim Carr, the A&R guy who got them on Capitol Records, you know, he would go and visit them and stuff. He said this it was insane walking through that. He's like, what do you need all this stuff for to record an album? <laughs> and Mike D was just telling him like, but dude, the rental place said the more stuff I ordered, the better deal I get. So we really saved a lot. <laughs> If you really think of it, it's great. <laughs> if you think about it, we're making money We're here. making money. We're making money. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what they did is that, you know, Record Plant, like, this is where they record orchestras in Los Angeles. And they rented out one of the orchestra rooms and filled it with bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It, they're really the Lost Boys. They're really, honestly, it, it's, it's one of those things where, uh, you know, the press says, like, they're drug addicts and mm -hmm. they're all these things. But really, they just want an arcade. No, and all they're doing is smoking weed, drinking red wine, doing some mushrooms every once in a while. It's nothing insane. No, <laughs> no, I would like to do that. Yeah. Can I enter that phase? <laughs> yeah, we could enter that phase tonight if you want to. All Deal. of those things are in this house right now. We don't have a pinball machine. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, but that's the thing is that the Beastie Boys at this point, they really are transforming from like the beer swilling frat boys that they were before into mellow potheads. Which, and it really, you can hear the difference. Like, License to Ill is beer. And Paul's Boutique, man, that's some fucking sweet weed. And yeah, a couple man. of glasses of red wine, some Ooh. cigarettes. You want to play some hacky sack? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Fuck yeah, bro. But while the Beastie Boys bounced from studio to studio, they moved out of Le Mondrian <laughs> and settled into a home that came to be known as the G-Spot, which had previously been rented by Hunter S. Thompson briefly during where the Buffalo Rome was uh, fucking filled. Actually, Bill Murray was in the house. Hunter S. Thompson was in the pool house. Yeah, because it's back country. <laughs> I got to set a fort out here. <laughs> the swimming pool is my moat. <laughs> I'm imagining it. Yeah, imagine, of course. And it was also rented by John Bon Jovi, uh, who was apparently a very nice boy, according to the people who own the house. <laughs> I actually see that. <laughs> and, and the funny thing is when they rented this house, Mike D said, quote, it never occurred to us that you don't have to live in a hotel in L.A. <laughs> it's like, wow, you guys are so responsible. So so the Beastie Boys, they rented this mansion that they called the G-Spot because the owners, the Grasshoffs, had a giant G on their gate that led to the driveway. Mm -hmm. And that mansion was very 
very late 70s. Okay, it's like a fucking museum of the late 70s. You got yes. sunken living rooms, shag carpeting, wood paneling on the fucking walls. It's very burgundy. <laughs> with all the trimmings, but equipped with all the latest technology, fancy TVs and stuff. So it was heaven. Burgundies and browns, baby. <laughs> and then they found, actually in the mansion, they found a closet tucked away in Mike D's room. And it was locked, so they had to pry it open. Well, that's the thing is that they're just spending all day getting stoned and they're fucking bored. So you get a locked door in front of a bunch of fucking stone kids, they're going to get inside. <laughs> yeah. Where are my tools? <laughs> we don't have tools. We got to make them. And they broke in. And it was a wondrous moment. It's like, where are the choir voices right now? <laughs> It was a huge wardrobe of vintage 1970s clothes, furs, velvet jackets, crazy pimp hats, platform <laughs> shoes, all of it. This is getting better and better for them. Yeah. So they started wearing them just around the house, like while eating a sandwich by the pool, going to Dolly Parton's Christmas slash birthday party and, and dressed in that. Actually, Adrock and MCA decided last minute not to dress up in the, the outfits and forgot to tell Mike D. So he showed up looking like white dolomites. <laughs> It was real nice pimp outfits, yeah. I'm trying to say. Yeah, yeah, great stuff. But that's the thing is that you say it's vintage. This is 1988. They're own, it's clothing that's like 10 years old it's, it's, at that point. It's halfway vintage. <laughs> it's not even there yet. <laughs> but yes, the Beastie Boys were actually nice boys despite wearing Marilyn's clothes. They didn't Marilyn was the woman who owned the house. Right. Was a, she was a fashion designer, right? No, no, she owned a studio. Ah. She owned a TV studio. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they didn't actually trash the place. Like the Beastie Boys, they didn't trash the place like they normally normally would this time they could have fun but they also knew that they had something more important to do yeah now like license to ill the songs in paul's boutique needed to mature for a little while before they were ready to bloom and the beastie boys in fact suffered from an intense case of writer's block when they first relocated to la i actually think it was like mario c had to write a couple of verses for them just to like like get going like <laughs> get out of here just fucking have at it they're like what do we write about we don't know <laughs> that was actually their problems and when they got together they're like what the fuck do we talk about now what do we do yeah but once the band got going they produced most of the material for paul's boutique during the last few months of 1988 from like late fall to christmas and the song that kicked off this creative explosion was a nasty james crumley-esque true crime narrative called high plains drifter yeah
how the Dust Brothers, when they show them all their mixes and stuff, and they're like, I know it's too much music. We'll, we'll strip it down. And Beast Boy's like, don't touch anything. <laughs> we will make it work. It's fucking perfect. Yes. Now, High Plains Drifter certainly had its violent elements, but it was still mostly a song about an actually scuzzy fuck drifter. The real violence on the album. And I'm saying this with a smile because I just fucking love this song. <laughs> it, this violence, it went far beyond the pirate antics of Ryman and Seal. And people say that, you know, I License to Ill is like the first gangster rap album. We talked about that. This, I think, is like this is the Beastie Boys first actual gangster rap song. And it's also one of the few that features Ad-Rock on guitar and MCA on bass. That song is the son of Sam referencing Stalker looking down the barrel of a gun. And love that song so much. Well, what's funny about this track is that by the time Paul's Boutique was released in 1989, N.W.A. had already broken big. And it's interesting to hear the contrast between, like, say, N.W.A. with, like, you hear Easy e like someone who actually participated in very real violence, as opposed to, like, this track from the Beasties, which still caused, like, a moral panic dust-up, even though it's obviously fantasy. That was one of the biggest criticisms of Paul's Boutique. It's like, can you believe how violent their music is? Can you believe how violent this song is? My God, the Beastie Boys are going to rip apart the moral fabric of America. There'll be nothing left. <laughs> it's like, a, it's a fucking, it's B-movie violence. It's nothing. It's fine. It's fine. However, the Beasties did bring a little bit of reality into Paul's Boutique with the third track, highlighting and humanizing a homeless guy who hung out on MCA's front steps in Manhattan. And his name was Johnny Rael. Cause he ain't got 
Yes. Yeah. My favorite song, Paul's Boutique. Hell yeah. So Johnny Royale, he was a real guy. Maybe that wasn't his name, though, <laughs> but he really existed. Yeah. He was a homeless man, like you said, who lived outside of Mike D's old apartment on Barrel Street in New York City. And apparently Johnny was quite the local character who, according to rumors uh, that I think their old tour manager, the captain, made up, was he was an alcoholic, washed up rockabilly star who ended up sleeping on the streets outside of Mike D's apartment. Yeah. <laughs> and Mike D used to actually feel really bad for this guy, especially when it got cold outside in New York City. So one day he gave him his Def Jam satin jacket to stay warm. <laughs> and so he's like, thanks, man. Thanks so much. Thank you. And which actually pissed off Russell because he would be walking around the corner and he see his company logo on a homeless guy. <laughs> you know what? Fuck Russell Simmons. Yeah, fuck Russell Simmons. The legendary Johnny Ryle is cold and he deserves a chicken. <laughs> and his story, whether legend or not, yeah. probably... Probably, Probably like he legend. didn't write blue suede shoes. No, he didn't do that. <laughs> He's got his story in this song. He does. Right. One of my favorite things about the Beastie Boys is Ad Rock's Yeah. And this album has his best yes. <laughs> the two best yes are in looking down the barrel of a gun. The, yeah! And then fucking Johnny Riles. Yeah! Like it's, they're just <laughs> the best. <laughs> I know it's That's fucking, a listicle you're going to write for uh, Vulture tomorrow. Yeah, Ad-Rock's top 10 best yes! Yeah, I know that. Yeah, I know it's fucking stupid that one of my favorite parts of this band is a noise one of the guys makes. But hey, man, we love what we love. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today now one of the defining characteristics of the beastie boys is obsession there's one thing that the beastie boys seem to be obsessed with above all other things in the 80s and that's eggs yeah surprisingly they egged a bouncer named mojo and wrote a song about it they drove around town in mca's lincoln continental egging strangers from the fucking sunroof they egged sig sig sputnik during their debut american show and they even employed professional toy makers to design an egg gun that the beastie boys would have sold to kids had it gone to production <laughs> apparently mca still had like he had the prototypes at his house and of course that egg gun idea came from an ad rock line Put him in check correct with my egg gun. Said on the Paul's Boutique track, Eggman. I looked out the window, seeing this bull head. Ran through the fridge and pulled out an egg. Scoping with my scopes, he had no hair. Lost that shot, he was caught out there. Saw the convertible driving by. Bought it up the slingshot, let one fly. He went for his to find, he didn't have one. Put him in check correct with my egg gun. Egg, a symbol of life. A course that dies to bust out to white. Pulled his pocket, 
<laughs> I mean, it's just a song about eggs. Yeah. It's a song about eggs. Egg, symbol of life. It's just a song about throwing eggs at people using the fucking reep, reep, reep from Psycho. Yeah. It's brilliant. I, and then Jaws. It, it's, you, you remember how we said earlier, they're like, what do we write about? <laughs> it was probably at a diner. Who knows? I mean, this is what, happened. This is what happens. Write what you know. Now, the thing about Paul's Boutique is that despite the fact that it's now considered a classic of the hip-hop genre, it didn't really have any obvious singles like License to Ill did. And License to Ill had four obvious singles, and that was somewhat by design. Yeah, because uh, their record company, Capital, uh, sure, they were like glad that the album was finally finished after nine months of waiting. <laughs> but they're like, okay, we want to sell it now. We want a single. And Tim Carr, you know, from Capital, he was their buddy throughout this whole thing. And he was on their side with everything, but he still had a job to do. So he nicely asked them for a single. <laughs> He's like, please. like, And he even used actual, uh, the, the Rolling Stones as an example of why they would need one. So Tim was saying like, listen, Rolling Stones had that huge hit, Can't Get No Satisfaction, but they were trapped by the success of that song until they came up with Jumping Jack Flash, which, funny enough, it's Can't Get No Satisfaction in reverse. (laughs) But anyway, anyway, you need a song, guys, a single, to get out of the fight for your right thing that you you guys have been battling for the last couple years. That's where everyone knows you from. Mm -hmm. And, And he's like, come on, guys, you're obviously not those guys anymore. Let people hear that. And MCA stood up and said, no, fuck that, man. This is a record with no fucking single. That is a direct quote. Yep. And they meant it. There were some great songs that they actually scrapped because it was too commercial. Yeah. They actually said, no, 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 that, that, that'll be too marketable. I'm not, we're not going to use that one. Like, like there's a Jerry Lewis song, apparently, that they, that they recorded that was really banging. But they're like, no, that's not what we want. They weren't going to make any more compromises like they did before and not let anyone run the show but them from then on. Yeah, I mean, I think even Mario C, like, it's he had such a sad story. He's like, I brought them this great song, and I thought it was so good, and I thought it was going to be amazing. Track. <laughs> no. Yeah, MCA said, like, no, it's like fucking Brass Monkey, that fast rapping commercial bullshit. We're not fucking doing that. Nope. Nope, they're doing what they want to do. But even so, three songs were eventually released with videos. The first was one of the most sample-heavy, complicated songs on the album, Hey Ladies. down the barrel of a gun. But the song on Paul's Boutique that got the best video was the one that writer Dan Leroy considers the most important song on the album, at least from the perspective of the personal and professional lives of the Beastie Boys. He wrote in his 33 and a third on Paul's Boutique, which is fucking great, Mm -hmm. that while the Beastie Boys weren't created by Rick Rubin and Russell Simmons, they certainly had to answer to the heads of their record company. And the Beasties, as representatives of Def Jam, had to also answer to the entire hip-hop community. 
Furthermore, the Beasties also had to answer to all the so-called fans who expected a second license to ill, which was the last thing in the world that the Beastie Boys wanted to do. So instead of fucking around with what everyone else wanted and expected, the Beasties recorded a Declaration of Independence, as Leroy put it, that told everyone in not so many words that from then on, the Beastie Boys were going to do whatever the fuck they wanted to do. And that declaration, based off a Bible story that MCA read while he was on acid about three young Jewish men who went through a literal trial by fire, was Shadrach. one of the most underrated videos of the late 80s check out the video for Shadrach it is amazing yeah like where it's a live performance that the Beastie Boys did around this time and it's a what it, I think it's what's called a kinescope uh, where they had a team of 20 painters actually paint each frame of this live performance to make it look like an animated painting yeah it's kind of like Waking Life yeah a lot like Waking Life except cooler and no Alex Jones <laughs> <laughs> Now, as far as the title for Paul's Boutique went, it actually came from the same place the Cookie Puss came from, at least spiritually. But as opposed to advertising on TV like Carvel's Ice Cream did, Paul's Boutique advertised on a reggae radio show that Ad-Rock later heard on a mixtape. It's a shopper's paradise at Paul's Boutique, 758 Linden Boulevard, between Utica Avenue and East 51st Street in Brooklyn, specializing in Italian and European collection of men's clothing, especially silk, linen, and cotton shirts, sweaters, suits, tailored pants, and imported shoes. They're open seven days a week, 11 a.m. to 9 p.m. For directions, you may call Paul's Boutique at 718-498-1043. That's 498-1043. And ask for Janice. That's Paul's Boutique. Ask for Janice when you call there. For the best in men's clothing, call 718-498-1043. 
Four, three. The best in men's clothing. Call Paul's Boutique at Arts of Janice. The number is 718-498-1043. That's Paul's Boutique and they're in Brooklyn. Hell yeah. How did it not become the next Macy's? <laughs> by the time Paul's Boutique came out, it was closed. Aww. Yeah, by the time Paul, yeah, Paul, they didn't even get the, the Beastie Boys bump. Oh, um, that's a shame. <laughs> and they asked that nice lady from the street to read a card. No, that was Janice. Oh, that was Janice <laughs> reading a card from the street. Janice. Janice works there. Call for Janice. Janice knows fucking everything about Paul's Boutique. Ask for Janice. <laughs> Call it there in Brooklyn. <laughs> now, if there's one word attached to Paul's Boutique more than any other, it's samples. Because the album, with few exceptions, is essentially created from dozens, if not hundreds, of snippets of other people's songs. However, there's actually no real consensus on how many of these samples were actually cleared, if any of them were cleared at all. Well, there were about two to three hundred samples on that album. Ooh. They, they think more or less. And there's actually websites that continue to update the sample list because it is lengthy. Yeah. So MCA, he was the creative force behind a lot of this recording, even though the Dust Brothers, you know, what we said before, were making a, a lot of the, most of the music. But MCA wanted to go completely over the top and sample everything he even said let's make this the nail in the coffin for sampling <laughs> i mean and there's so many like just tiny little samples like in looking down like just for example like in looking down the barrel of a gun they sample that is just mississippi queen it's just <laughs> it's just it's like one or two notes from it's a less than a second of mississippi queen but it's it's popped in there and it really makes the song just yeah. like one like like, we can't take any of them out. Yeah. Sorry, it all falls apart. Yeah, it kind of is. Yeah, if you take one, it's like a house of cards. You take one thing out and the whole fucking thing just ends. Yes. <laughs> and as far as clearing the samples, you know, making sure that uh, clearing the samples, meaning like you can legally use other people's music. Well, there is a little bit of a debate on that. Right. Yeah. So according to Mike Simpson, you know, one half dust brother, he said that some samples cleared and some just did it. <laughs> and Tim Carr from Capital ambiguously said they cleared what they had to clear. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, they cleared who's that lady. Definitely. Yes. Yeah. For B-Boy Boya Bass. But I don't <laughs> know about all the like tiny little like I don't know if they cleared like Incredible Bongo Band. They probably cleared Incredible Bongo. What we had to clear. <laughs> and Mario C. said the band had to pay a quarter of a million dollars in sample clearances. Ooh. I believe that. I definitely believe that. Yeah. But no matter what was cleared and what wasn't, sample laws changed just after Paul's Boutique was released, which guaranteed that no album like it would ever be made again that just pretty much used whatever sample they wanted to. Of course, there was plenty of great albums, that, like collage albums that have been Like Girl Talk since. kind of stuff? Girl Talk is wonderful. The one that I'm more thinking of is uh, Avalanches, Since I Left You. Which oh, yeah, is a, yeah, yeah. Beautiful. I mean, everyone knows Frontier Psychiatrist, but like the title track to that and, you know, in just pretty much anything the Avalanches have done is just fucking wonderful and beautiful. We've never fucking heard the Avalanches. Go listen to the Avalanches. <laughs> it's fucking great. But even though Paul's Boutique is now hailed as a masterpiece, much to the surprise of everyone involved, when it was released in 1989, it fell flat on its fucking face. Yeah, and they had a big party 
to commemorate the release on the top of the Capitol Records building. Yeah, you know, they hoisted up an American flag with the Beastie Boys name on it. <laughs> I mean, they they actually hired a plane to write their name in the sky. Yeah. There were hors d'oeuvres passed around and all their friends were there, like Say Adams, Dave Skilkin, their actor buddy, Max Perlich. You know, it was a big fiesta that led to, unfortunately, disappointing sales from the album. It, it it flopped. Yeah. You know, the sales didn't even come close to matching License to Ill. Some record stores were even returning a lot of the stock and didn't reorder anymore. Yeah. Like Paul's boutique stalled before it even started. So the Beastie Boys went up to their record label and they sat down with the president of Capitol. And before they could even open their mouths, the president just gave them the brush off and said, listen, I'm a deadhead. So I get it. The company's just real busy right now. We're putting all our resources on the new Donny Osmond album. <laughs> you understand. So, you know, next time, okay? And the guys, I don't know why I made that voice. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, what are you trying to do? Listen, next time, all right? I'm a deadhead. <laughs> yeah, deadhead bro. And the guys were like thinking like, next time. We spent nine months on this album and no one is promoting it well. And also that bald on top ponytail in the back Danny DeVito look like president <laughs> with the tie-dye shirt under his blazer doesn't need to explain that he's a deadhead and fuck Donny Osmond. <laughs> why aren't they marketing it and pushing for this album? Like, why does nobody care? And I mean, like, the guys, they were dismayed by the snub. And, you know, especially since they finally got to do something with total creative freedom and then they were just let down by another record company again. Yeah. And, you know, they also somewhat ran into the same problem that Iggy Pop ran into with Lust for Life, uh, is that there were a lot of record stores that just, they some record stores returned shit, but then some record stores, like, didn't really get that many copies. And yeah. so they sold out immediately and then never got any more. There were no more records to fucking sell because Donny Osmond was taking up all the resources. <laughs> the record plant can't stop making Donny Osmond <laughs> records, apparently. And actually, this wasn't great for Capitol Records either because Paul's Boutique was one of the big reasons why they fired their president. <laughs> and yes, the ponytail guy got fired yep. and their entire A&R staff by the end of the year. The CEO like furiously like claimed that the Beastie Boys made them the laughing stock of the recording industry. <laughs> <laughs> and there was like lots of finger waving from that guy. But the funny thing is the head of A&R, Tom Whaley, who was also fired, was at the time in the process of signing a distribution deal with Death Roll Records. So he ah. took his deal and brought it to Interscope Records where they released... Dr. Dre's The Chronic, <laughs> as well as Snoop Dogg's first album, oh. and later other hip-hop acts uh, like Tupac Shakur, uh. Eminem, uh. and 50 Cent. So Capitol uh. Records really messed up this time. Oh, my God. But, but listen, I'm a deadhead. I understand. <laughs> I fucking get it, bro. I'm cool. <laughs> and what was worse is that even though Paul's Boutique is brilliant, it also came out in one of the best years for hip-hop albums that there ever was. Three months before Paul's Boutique, De La Soul dropped their masterpiece, Three Feet High and Rising, which was stylistically very similar to what the Beasties had done. Mirror, mirror on the wall, tell me, mirror, what is wrong? Can it be my De La clothes or is it just my De La song? What I do ain't make-believe, people say I sit and try, but when it comes to being De La, it's just me, myself, and I. It's just me, myself, and I It's just me, 
Now you tease my plug one style and my plug one spectacles. You say plug one and two are hippies nowhere, not just pure plug bull. Always pushing that we formed an image, there's no need to lie. When it comes to being plug one, it's just me, myself, and I. Yeah, fucking beat three feet high and rising. Mm-hmm. But even without three feet high and rising, the Beastie Boys would have still had to contend with their former opening act, Public Enemy, who released It Takes Some Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back just one month before Paul's Boutique. <sighs> <laughs> yeah, they're having to deal with two of the best hip hop albums. It, like that's the amazing thing is the three of the best albums in hip hop history, and that's not even me saying that. That is consensus. Were released within three months of each other. Furthermore, remember that Def Jam was insanely powerful in the hip hop world, and still is to this day. And many people believe that hip hop artists, especially those on Def Jam, were under a gag order from Russell Simmons to keep the proper due away from his former charges. But critics didn't owe a goddamn thing to Russell Simmons, and the album almost immediately got its due as a groundbreaking record. Robert Christgau of The Village Voice called it a generous three-joint tour de force. David Hiltbrand said it was as important in 1989 as Blonde on Blonde was in 1966, and Melody Maker said that while, quote, it could have been so bad, the Beastie's transformation was instead miraculous. It was more like, it could have been so bad. <laughs> and what happened? I know. It was weed. <laughs> but perhaps what hurt the Beastie Boys most was the fact that they couldn't tour on the album because they'd spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on stupid shit. And again, Capital had all their money tied up and Donnie fucking Osmond in 1989. But Mike D had a great deal. <laughs> if you get like three pinball machines, it's almost as cheap as having one. <laughs> and what made the faceplant even worse was when in 1991, their old friend Dave Skilkin, name-checked and looking down the barrel of a gun, died from a tragic drug overdose. Yeah, their man, Dave Skilkin, Adrock's old bandmate, you know, from the Young and the Useless, from when they were 14 years old, the guy who'd hang out with them and watch the Stimulators play at CBGB's when they were 17 years old, you know, their cohort in so many shenanigans and pranks in their 20s, and also a fantastically talented artist and graffiti writer. He was a great guy, and he was everyone's best friend, especially to the Beastie Boys. Mm-hmm. And so when they heard that Dave Skilkin had died, the Beasties, they, they flew to New York for the funeral and reconnected, you know, with all their old friends like Jill Conniff and, and Kate Schellenbach. You know, they all hung out together and reminisced about the old days and special memories of their friend Dave. Uh, his death definitely, according to Kate, seemed to have like knocked them all back into reality. Yeah. And for a minute, they just forgot about the funny pranks and the ping pong tables and celebrity <laughs> parties and... And just really just got back in with their friends again. Yeah. I mean, that, that's usually what happens. There's, you know, when we're in our 20s, you know, we all lose a friend. And and that's when you kind of realize that, oh, maybe all this stupid shit doesn't really matter. Like, yeah. you re, we, let's refocus on what actually makes us happy. Yeah. So the Beastie Boys returned to Los Angeles after the funeral with memories of the old days of New York City, of the young Aborigines and of the young and the useless, of Kate Schellenbach and of all the people they knew when Ad-Rock, MCA and Mike D played their own instruments 
before the days of hip-hop. So, when it came time to start the next album, the Beastie Boys completely left the sample-heavy style of Paul's Boutique behind them, partly because they knew they couldn't get away with that many samples a second time, but mostly because it's just what they wanted to do. The result was that when the Beastie Boys brought their old punk spirit to their next record, they began a climb towards permanently becoming one of the biggest bands in the world with Check Your Head. In other words, when punk finally broke in 1991 with Nirvana, it wasn't much of a surprise that the Beastie Boys, who successfully merged hip-hop with punk, became one of the biggest bands of the decade. Yes! And that's the secret of the Beastie Boys, is that it's not rock rap, it's punk rap. Oh! (laughs) And it's with the 90s and the three fantastic albums produced therein that we'll end our series on the Beastie Boys in two weeks' time. Yes! We have one more! One more! One more! That's when we talk about Check Your Head. That's when we talk about Ill Communication. That's when we talk about fucking Hello Nasty. Yes. And of course, you know. And we'll yada, yada, yada. Yeah. (laughs) But uh, definitely, uh, you know, we had to read some extra books for this. The uh, Beastie Boys Paul's Boutique 33rd and a 3rd by Dan. Uh, Is it Leroy? Because I've been saying Leroy. (laughs) Well, there's an R. The R is a capital. So I think it's Leroy. All right. Dan Leroy. Yeah. And uh, thank you, Dan. This is great. And and also uh, check out the uh, sequel to that book, uh, For Whom the Cowbell Tolls, 25 Years of Paul's Boutique 66 and 2 thirds. Yeah. And I'd also like to thank uh, Dan Leroy for uh, doing a little bit of email back and forth with me and answering some questions about Paul's Boutique. Thank you very much. Thank you, dude. And And go buy his books. They're fucking great. 
And uh, I, I also read Fight the Power, Rap, Race, and Reality by Chuck D. I got a healthy dose of all three of those <laughs> on the book. It's really great. Check it out. And um, who's our band for this week? Our band for this week, of course, you know, at the end of every single episode, we play uh, a band from out there in the listener pool because you guys are fucking amazing uh, and make so much great music. And if you have a band that you want us to play, if you're an unsigned band that wants to get a little bit of exposure. Or you just make a little bit of noise. You're just a guy with a keyboard. That's totally cool, too. Also great. Send us an email at nodogsinspace at gmail.com uh, and we'll give it a listen. And this week's band is Losses from Los Angeles, California. Uh, they just put out an EP in 2020 called Spirit Crusher. And the song that we're going to listen to today is Drones. It's fucking great. It's synth stuff. You know how much I love the synth. Sweet. Wonderful synth. Wonderful, wonderful synth. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. And we will be back Two weeks from now, uh, with the conclusion uh, to season 1.1 or 1.2. It was 1.1. 1.1. Yeah. I don't know if we got, ever got to 1.2. <laughs> Goodbye, everyone. Goodbye. legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba-go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last.